This is Archive Atlanta, episode 151, Oral History, Catherine Gefkin. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week, I'm sharing a super special and very different type of episode, Um, and it's the second oral history interview that I have been lucky enough to do. So the first one, I'm still working on editing that. It's a long story. It's a huge file. I learned a lot audio-wise, question-wise, so look for that one soon. But this is one of probably the best things that's come out of this year, podcast-wise, is people just messaging me and saying, hey, like, there's a guy at church you should talk to, you know, my my husband's aunt or, you know, my grandma. Um, and I have to confess something. I used to be very indifferent about oral histories. I've used them in research generally, but our memories are extremely fallible. So if you're remembering something from decades ago or something your parents or grandparents told you, let's be honest, like it becomes a giant game of telephone. And I remember they made us play that in like third grade or something to understand, you know, how quickly things warp and change as they go from person to person. And I'm a very factual person. I love evidence. I triple check everything. And so oral histories were just not the first place I went. And I was very wrong about that. So I I think I realized that when I first went to a Sweet Auburn Stories event, this is before the pandemic, and I got to listen to Dr. Gwendolyn Middlebrooks. And so for me, it was like, okay, I've been, you know, doing Auburn Avenue tour for, I think, five years at this point, reading all of this stuff. But here was this woman who lived through it all. You know, she had incredible stories. And it brought such a richness and better understanding to the stuff that I had read where I was like, oh, okay. I was like, you know, I'm I'm missing something here. Like, this is the part that I'm missing. And when I was connected to Miss Gefkin, I was able to kind of edit our talk down to share the highlights of her experience, at least with Atlanta's history, Um, from, you know, being born at Piedmont Hospital living on Myrtle Street, then West Peachtree Street. Um, She was really active in All Saints Episcopal. Um, She went to the Spring Street School, O'Keefe Junior High, Girls High, and then Agnes Scott. There's some hilarious stories about how uh, puritanical Agnes Scott was at that time and where you could find alcohol as a young student. Um, And then, surprise to me, in, in the interview, I found out that she then went to Bryn Mawr and became a professor at Wellesley. Um, So she's an incredibly just educated, professional, you know, badass woman. She's 94 years old. I got such a richness of Atlanta's history from listening to her. So I hope that you do the same. Without further ado, here is my interview with Catherine. Well, I was born here. I was born in uh, Old Piedmont Hospital. The one down was Capitol Which was down near the Capitol. Yeah. And the obstetrician was a famous baby doctor, delivery doctor of those days named Dr. Schellenberger. I saw his picture in the Piedmont Hospital over here one day up in the corridor where they have pictures of Former physicians, yeah. famous physicians. In the new building. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, the one, not the new one, but I think of the whole of Piedmont on Peachtree is new. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, so I was born here. My parents, uh, at that point, lived in an apartment on Myrtle Street just off uh, Ponce de Leon. So one of my first memories is of looking up at the Peters house, which was has been restored now. And then 
after about three years there, while our house on West Peachtree, which my grandfather bought new in 1910, it had been rented out for five years. And so then it was decided to take it back to restore it for my mother. So we lived in an apart in a house that belonged to a relative of ours over off Amsterdam Avenue. And then that was one year, I think, and then we moved to West Peachtree. It was probably the late summer of 1931, and we lived there until my parents decided to move permanently to our country place, which was out in, we owned land at Spalding Drive in Roberts Road in, in Dunwoody, what we thought of as Dunwoody, it's now Sandy Springs. And, and that was a country home. And well, we, I love that. that I mean, but it we, was. <laughs> we were one of two or three city families out there, and the rest were farmers all around us. Really? So, uh, and they moved out there in 1946. And then we held that property until my, a year after my father died. And then my mother decided, against the wishes of everyone in the family, to sell that property. Go back to Spring Street School, because I'm so curious. You walked to Spring Street School? Well, it only took about six minutes to walk okay, to Spring okay. Street Okay, okay, so no streetcar to take. All we had to do was walk three houses down to 16th Street, and then we walked down 16th Street to Spring Street, and then up Spring Street to the school. I was born in 1927. 1927, so... So I entered kindergarten at five years of age. Uh, and I graduated from the sixth grade there in 1939. Did you guys go for fun? Like, what? Like as a child, did you go to movies? Like, I mean, it was the Depression, right? Was there... Was there certainly was the Depression. What was the Depression like in Atlanta? I always wondered. Well, I think the most graphic thing I could say about that is two things. Is that my mother often said that she never had more than 25 cents in her pocketbook on any given day, and nobody paid my father. Oh, because he was the dentist. Yeah. Oh. Nobody paid the doctors and dentists. Really? And my grandmother was the one with the money, so her money saved us. Now, this is your mother's mother? or My father? mother's mother. Okay. She, uh, my father was her second husband. Her first husband, she married in 1917, he was from New York, a German family in New York. And um, within about a year after the marriage, it was determined that he had TB. And so the, the decision was made to go west, where they sent TB patients yes. in those years. Yes, to the Wild West. <laughs> so they went to New Mexico and Denver and finally Asheville, North Carolina, and he died in 1920 in Asheville. So my mother came home as a widow of 29 years old. And no children, or they had children? No children. She came back to Atlanta. She became a kind of fashion plate. Oh! (laughs) Her father, very fortunately, was able to support her. And then she met my father in 1924 and married him in 20. 1924, here in Atlanta. Where did your 
mother meet your father? I'm not sure precisely where. Here in Atlanta at a bridge game. At a bridge? Oh, so many and bridge they, announcements they, in the paper. <laughs> set up by a good friend of theirs who became one of my mother's closest friends until she moved to California, named Catherine Hauser. I'm partly named for her. It was always clear in our household that my mother's first love, her first husband, was her real love. And my father was, she was very fond of my father. They they were a very good couple. They went to live in the apartment. They went to live on Myrtle Street. Okay. No, first of all, they lived in an apartment on Park Lane in Ansley Park. Oh. And then that was rather small, I guess. And so then they decided to move to this Myrtle Street apartment. For one thing, it was closer to my father's office. He practiced dentistry with a group of in a building with a group of doctors oh. on Juniper Street, and it was the Roberts Memorial Clinic. Uh, okay, let me figure my brain if here where I'm. So you graduate from Spring Street School, and did you go straight to Girls High? No, I went to O'Keefe. You're Jane right, O'Keefe. Where was O'Keefe? Because the Atlanta O'Keefe? system in those days was 633. And my godmother, Marjorie Webster, whose photograph is in here, was the first kindergarten teacher in Atlanta, and she was kindergarten teacher at Spring Street. So it was kindergarten six years, three years, and three years. Okay. So, but where was O'Keefe when you went there? What's that? Where was O'Keefe Junior High School? Well, it's still standing. Every time you drive down the interstate, you see it right. I looked at it this morning. Really? On the way to church because it's right. It's part of Georgia Tech now. Really? Yes. You see the building right from the. If you are going downtown, yeah. You just look to the right when you are approaching the North Avenue exit before you get to the houses that were part of the Techwood yeah. development. And the O'Keefe is a big brick building that's sort of like like that. I did not know that. Of this whole time, it's the only school that I didn't hear a lot about and also had no idea where it was and I, I hadn't figured it out yet. So that's so, so it was all right there next to I mean, could you walk there as well? Yes, I walked there. Now, the connector, that whole interstate, wasn't there. Of course not. So I, I can't even imagine it not being there. I mean, you were just able to cross right over, right? I mean, you could easily sure. get to where Georgia and, Tech was. And, uh, of course, my father was very dismayed by the design of the the interstate, because it essentially destroyed a number it, of neighborhoods. It did. Yes, it did. And um, and O'Keefe was situated around that that General North Avenue to Fifth Street neighborhood, General in there. It seems to me I remember the walk as going down 14th Street to Spring Street and then walking Spring Street. So then after three years there, you go to Girls High. Girls High. Had to take the famous Girls High streetcar. How did you get, what was the route to that streetcar? Well, there were streetcars from all over Atlanta. But one of the originating points was Pershing Point, where the two big trees come together. And two Girls High streetcars ran on Peachtree starting there. So... You wanted to catch the first, but you sure had to catch the second. <laughs> now, why did you want to catch the first, just to be on time, or was it the more? But <laughs> the second one was sort of, if you almost made didn't make the second one, that was truly panicky. 
And then there was no way to walk. I mean, what would you do if you missed it? I think, well, you take this, this, the Westfield Street bus. Ah, okay. About that time, it was trackless trolley, probably, and not the trolley anymore, the streetcar. And you'd go downtown, and then you'd take a bus that would go out there, but you'd be about an hour and a half late. Oh, wow. Gosh. So the streetcar <laughs> was a kind of social club because everybody who rode the Peachtree Girls High streetcar knew one another. We all, and there, and some people would study on the streetcar and some some girls would play bridge. That was the bridge section to the streetcar. <laughs> I love this. And there was a study section. And then in the afternoon, the streetcars that had a, they had a, a kind of tail end where they'd go off behind the high school. And then there was a schedule in the afternoon that they would leave at certain times. And they would then deposit you downtown in central Atlanta. So then I would walk two or three blocks to Walton Street, Broad Street, trackless trolley for West Fifth Street. Oh, so on the way home, it wouldn't take you back to Pershing Point? No, it'd take us downtown. Interesting. Okay, and then you would have to take a a regular regular. trolley. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, which section of the trolley were you on? Were you the study or the bridge? Well, I was never in the bridge (laughs) game because my mother often said, you'll never have freedom if you learn to play bridge because you'll always be wanted as a fourth, so don't learn to play bridge. So I didn't. And uh, I was either in the social section where we just gossiped, and my best friend was on that bus as well. I mean, that streetcar. So we mainly just talked about teenage girls have endless things to discuss. Oh, of of course. (laughs) Endless. And we were in Girls High also during the war, Second World War. So that had an impact, of course. What was the year? Was it forty one when the wars? I'm bad with my World War Two. December forty one is when we entered the war, and so did that make it the the urban legend or whatever you know that you didn't have a lot of good boys to date, really, right? Because they were all at war. That's true and not true. Okay. Um, there were uh, at Tech there were several programs for mm. soldiers and sailors, especially the Navy had several programs there. So that there were always people around, and All Saints had a lot of activities. Every Saturday night in the parish house, there was a dance, and the tech students, especially those in the service who were in these programs at Georgia Tech, were invited to these. So I would say yes and no. Often the boys that the girls had known previously maybe were away, but other people were around. Gotcha. There was new blood. <laughs> and there was Fort McPherson. Here, yes, you know. you're right. You're right. I forget about that. So you, I get what you're saying. It wasn't a small town where everyone left and they're gone. I mean, Atlanta was a bustling city. So It may not were... have been the boy you grew up with, but there was another gotcha. boy. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So mm-hmm. how did the war impact you? Did it impact your life in a in a daily way, or was it more just something that was going on in the background? Well, I was less affected by it. It, it, it was, of course, it affected all a housewife because there were rationing stamps, uh. and my mother dealt with that. My father, dentists were not eligible in the way that MDs were for special dispensation for gasoline. 
my father's pattern changed slightly. He was very careful not to drive too much because we didn't have enough gasoline. And he, he rented out our country house because we didn't have the gasoline to go oh. out there. So that was the main way the war affected us, I would say. And, of course, for a long time, people were convinced that we were going to be bombed. And so my father, in fact, was the air raid warden for our block. And I can remember seeing him put on, you know, extra coat and hat and take the flashlight, which he was very careful, and go on his rounds around the neighborhood. We heard trickles of information that, in fact, a lot of submarines were right off the coast. Wow. But they didn't come this far. So what what was his job as the air raid warden? He just had to sort of do a check to see if anything check was... to make sure that people's lights weren't showing. Oh. We had to cover the windows. So yeah. that was the idea that no lights could show. Yeah. I didn't know that. It, I don't know how long that continued, but there was a while when we were told to pull the shades. Was there a parade after when the war ended? Did they do something? When World War II ended, did they have some kind of parade? Well, we had two endings to World War I. World War II, you remember. We had VE Day and VJ Day. And I can't remember exactly one, which one. It may have been the VE Day when my best friend, Rosetta Thomas, lived one block further down, farther down West Feet Street. And she and a couple of other people, her brother Ray and so forth, and for some crazy reason, she said, we're going to walk downtown. We walked all the way downtown, (laughs) where there were a lot of people. (laughs) It's like Times Square, Junior. Yeah, I've seen pictures where it's packed with people. That was kind of stupid. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we walked. So at this point, when you graduated, your parents went back to Charleston. Because your dad had retired. I think you said 46. No. No. My family, I, I went one year to Agnes Scott living oh, on West just, Pitch Street. Oh, okay. So they stayed for one and year. And then my mother sold the house. And then what did you go to Agnes Scott? Did you have a major when you went in? Well, I thought I was going to be a doctor or a medical artist. And I would ended up majoring in Latin and Greek. Oh! <laughs> That's so, amazing. Well, I had... Um, I always liked languages and reading and things like that. And I'd always been interested in the ancient world. And it also was a kind of meticulous work which appealed to me. And on top of all of that, the faculty, there were only two members of the faculty in classics at Agnes Khan at that time. But they, the older one of them was an absolutely mesmerizing teacher. So there a number of us in her time became classics major because of the influence of her teaching and stimulation of her classes. What was her name? Do you remember? Catherine Glick. Catherine Glick. Oh, I have to look her up. So at Agnes Scott, when your parents left to Charleston... To go out to Dunwoody. Sorry, I'm sorry. You're right, to Dunwoody. Did they have dorms or how? where did you live there? Agnes Scott has many dorms. Oh, okay, so you were able to just stay in one of those? Yeah, I went. At that time, especially, the dorms were by class. So Rebecca Scott was the sophomore dorm, and so I lived in Rebecca Scott, then my junior year in what's called Maine, and then my senior year, six of us were seniors in a house with freshmen. 
was a good experience. But I would say, and I've often been asked this question, I would say the most important part of my education was actually the part that led up to that. Led up to going to Agnes Scott? Or... I think the years at Girls High. Really? Girls High was a truly tough high school. I heard it was very difficult. Yes. Put demands on you. The, the effort to get there, we talked about from my part of town, and the standards in the teachers. And then I was, as I mentioned, I was very active on the Girls oh, High yeah, Times. Oh, the newspaper, yes. So that took up a lot of the time. It was a bonding experience, too, you know. In comparison to Girls High, Agnes Scott was smaller in size and number of students and also so much more homogeneous. How so? You know, Girls High was all white at that time, of course, but it drew from all sections of the city, from the very rich to the very poor. So you met students from every economic level, and some of my brightest classmates in fact, came from very limited situations. Whereas Agnes Scott, when I went to it, was a very solid, excellent place, but very homogeneous. Everybody was the same. I mean, the same everybody, economic. Everybody was some more or less upper middle class, very fairly well off, overwhelmingly Presbyterian. Oh. Because the college maintained very strong ties to the Presbyterian Church in its origins. Very, very puritanical in its rules. I don't know why. I think because now I think of it as, and I know nothing about Agnes Scott. This is purely based on whatever. I think of it as a progressive, you know, like the girls I know that went there do amazing progressive things. So I would never have associated it with being puritanical. But but I could definitely see that in the well, 40s. Well, I was on the board for 20 years, from 1975 to 95. And um, the college had already, in some sense, modernized it. It already opened its doors, so to speak. It had begun relaxing rules. And certainly by the time I went off the board, it was a very different place. It was much less judgmental. It was much more varied in its student body. Many of my classmates were what they call PK, you know, preacher preacher's kids. kids. I've learned that term as a as a Southern transplant. I learned what that meant. Oh, they were um, missionaries' daughters. Really? Presbyterians had a lot of missionaries. And we had required chapel. We were not allowed to go out after dark. Wow. Unless we had a chaperone. Couldn't dance with boys on campus. You couldn't dance with boys. Wow. Did you, I'm feeling like you didn't like these rules. I mean, was it too much for you? Well, I was you? <laughs> used to a very different approach to things, you know. I mean, I, since I, I think this was less difficult for the students who came from out of town. The Atlanta students tended, many of them, to live at home where they had all the freedoms oh, in the world. Oh, I understand. Okay. And, but once I went into residence, you know, I had to conform. Now, did you have a boyfriend at this time? Were you no, dating? No, one didn't have a chance. No. No, one, Agnes Scott worked us very hard. 
Oh, really? So there just wasn't even a chance for a social life? Well, some people did. The ones who maintained the social life the best were the Atlanta students who lived oh. at home because they had the leeway to go out oh. with their boyfriends. So I was going to ask, I mean, did you guys even go to downtown Decatur to go out at all, or was it very centered on campus? Well, we went into downtown De Decatur. It was then a very small, sleepy southern town, right. just a square, <laughs> with maybe one pharmacy, the movie, and Belt Gallant. That's it? That was it. Wow. That's not how I obviously know Decatur today. <laughs> So it wasn't even really And Decatur Presbyterian Church, which we had to pass by going down to the square and the courthouse. Oh, my. So it wasn't even really a place to go out. I mean, you, you were in... We went to the movies every now and then. <laughs> it's so funny because in my mind, I'm like, oh, it must have been so fun to go to downtown Decatur. To go and some students went across the street to houses where they could drink. We had to sign a rule. We had to sign something when we became a student that we would drink alcohol only in the homes of our parents. Really? But there were students, and we couldn't smoke either, but there were some kids who had friends who somehow made friends with sympathetic ladies who lived across the street, and they would disappear every now and then to have a drink and smoke. Oh, I love this. This is great. Those beautiful houses that are like all around Agnes Scott. Well, no, on the north side. On the north the, side. All the houses on the south side are faculty houses. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, this is great. I want to go back. On, on Candler Street and McDonough, yeah. the houses are all fan, faculty houses. Okay, that makes sense. No, this was across the railroad <laughs> across track the on Howard Street. Yeah. Oh, this is great. But um, <laughs> it was a very serious academic institution. So you, grad so you graduated from Agnes yeah. Scott. And what year was that? 1949. 49. And then... Well, then what? What happens after? Well, I didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated. I had a very heavy senior year because I was doing honors in classics, and I was also chairman of diocesan chairman of the diocesan youth commission of the Episcopal Church, and so I was trying to write an honors paper and do my classes, and then I was off every Sunday because I had to go from parish to parish and meetings and everything all wow. around North Georgia. I was sort of going crazy, and I said, I'm not going to decide anything until I f this is all over. I just, it was just too much. So um, I decided to go off and teach, and I taught two years in a boarding school uh, in Wisconsin, Kenosha, actually. And uh, which was run by a community of Episcopal nuns. Ah. And then I went off to graduate school. And where was graduate school? Great. I went to Bryn Mawr, which in my field was the best for a female at wow, that time. yeah. And, um, and what was your... And eventually to Wellesley to teach. You did? You taught at Wellesley? Yes. I was on the oh faculty. Oh, my gosh. I'm still a member of the faculty. Wow. Um, all those sister colleges have links, you know. Yeah. And my professor had been the advisor of the thesis of one of the Wellesley faculty. And so I went there expecting to stay maybe three years. And in the second year, this particular senior colleague committed suicide. And that opened up a place in the department. So as a result of her death, I stayed. And how long did you stay there? I was on the faculty for 35 years, but 30 of the five of those years, interspersed here and there, I was away. Okay. 
Now, so I was actually on campus 30 years. What year did you get to Wellesley? I went to Wellesley in September 1963, and I retired in 1998. Now, in this whole time, had, have you, had you ever married? No. You, did you date anybody? Well, I knew I mean, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I knew a lot of people. Was there anyone, that cont- any contenders? I mean, did it ever but get... But nobody ever lived with me, so was oh. it. And you just not possible. Why? Couldn't have done my job. Really, it was that strenuous that I mean, it just wouldn't have given you. Well, time. in my generation, there are very few academic women who marry. Oh, I I believe it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's it's funny when you when I'm in the Atlanta Public Schools archives, they kept these log books, and this was you know very early 1900s, but they would lose so many teachers to marriage. You know, it was just like married, married, and then that was that was most of the reason that women would opt out of the workforce and, and then never Well, my back. mother had a point of view that only women who were, she grew up, as I say here in Atlanta, only women who were unpopular went to college. Oh, gosh. Only women who weren't going to marry went to college. And if your father could, and it was a disgrace if your father couldn't support you as a single woman. Wow. So that was her world, those three things. Now, how did she feel about you going on to do this? Well, she pointed out to me that I had to support myself. And I had to take care of my sister. After your mom passed, you mean? Oh, she... She lived 96. Your sister? No, my mother. Your mother was 96? She was just a short time before 96. Wow. Were you able to take care of your sister? Well, I had to. Uh, I kept her here. Yeah. She lived with most of this, not here, but in her apartment. Did your father ever share how he felt about it? About what? About you being, you know, a, a woman professor in these times. Well, he was very... You know how fathers are about daughters and... And uh, my father was very quiet about these matters. But um, I had made it clear to him what I think at Agnes Scott once, that no girl's high, that he was to stay out of my academic life <laughs> because I got a, some kind of grade in French at, at girl's high that he thought was inappropriate. And he called the instructor up and I heard about this. So I think I made it clear that this was going to be that I, he was not to do that again. He was a very, very gentle gentleman and very sweet. I can't think of anything else. I mean, is there any other no, crazy No, just one? let me ask you. Yeah. Your last name seemed to me to be Greek. It's, is that well, right? Well, so funny enough, my parents are from Spain. But my last name, I think, is, uh, you know, of, or, of Greek origin somewhere. But my entire family is Spanish. So from... Any relative we know, um, they're all from Spain. So there you have it. Atlanta history through the lens of Catherine Gefkin. I had to leave in that last part because, of course, someone with a PhD in you know Greek and Latin was going to ask me about my, my last name. I thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or review wherever you're listening to the podcast. I'm hesitant to say, you know, tell me who I should interview next because I don't have enough time to do everybody but is if there is someone in your life um that is you know over 90 and, and has these atlanta connections definitely send me a message or send me an email my contact information is always in the show notes hope everyone has a great weekend and i'll talk to you next week